Let's begin today by reading our scripture or text from Ephesians chapter 5. We're working our way through Ephesians, and we are at chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. And the subject today is sexual obsessions. So where are you going to go to church to find a topic like this? So here we are. That's one of the things when you... When you go through a book, uh, I mean, if you're if you're sincere with it and honest with it, you you deal with the passage when you, that you come to, and there's difficult passages. So this is, uh, I think, a difficult passage. Ephesians chapter five, beginning in verse three. We'll begin reading. It says sexual immorality and all impurity. Or covetousness must not even be named among you. Uh, just a word about the word covetousness. Now there, you might wonder why he puts that word in there when he's been talking of, when he starts talking about sexual immorality or fornication. I don't think the word covetous here means he's covetous means covetousness for something. I think it has the idea of Exodus 20:17. One of the Ten Commandments is that you shall not covet, and then he names the things you're not to covet. Don't covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife. You can covet a person. You know, there are some things we want that we shouldn't have. Amen? And we get them and we wish we hadn't got them. Well, you can covet a person as well as a thing. So this is what Paul is saying here. Sexual immorality and impurity are coveting other people's wives and husbands. Must not even be named among you as becomes saints. Now, he's dealing specifically with Christians here. He's not, he's talking to the Ephesian church. And so this has special application to Christians that we're, we're not, we don't say to the world, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this. Paul is talking to people who have the living Christ, resurrected Christ, indwelling them. He is, he is assuming you understand that you have the power to live a Christian life because Christ is in you. He's not just throwing out rules and regulations for Christianity. So he says, as those who are, that is proper among the saints. So let there be no filthiness, verse 4, verse four let there be no foolish talk or crude jokes. Uh, a lot of times the lust of our heart will come out in the constant conversations, the innuendos, the little uh, smirky and smarmy remarks that we make with sexual overtones. All of that, he says, uh, rather let there be thanksgiving. Let that come out. Verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
So let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. I'm coming to you today as a pastor, um, and I have found that there are few things that cause greater pain in people's lives, greater sorrow, than defeat in this area. Um, some years ago, we had a, a young man at uh, at the Bristol Road location, and he grew up in the church there and uh, finally dropped out of church and was out for quite a while, started dating a young lady, and she became pregnant, and... Um, to his great despair, uh, she did not want to either marry him or keep the baby. And so against his efforts and wishes, she got an abortion. This so sent him into such a spiral of depression. He just couldn't come out of it. And so he... One evening, he went to his bedroom, took a gun, and shot himself in the head, killed himself. And I did the funeral, very difficult funeral. The, the impact on people's lives of sexual sin is so deep. The potential for sorrow. This, I know this is painted by the world as your sexuality as having great potential for happiness. Let me tell you, there are a few things in life that can create sorrow as deep and lasting as this area of your life. So I'm talking to you as a pastor here. It also does, can do, outside God's boundaries, incredible damage to the personality. Shame, what the effect of shame and the creation and expansion and strengthening of, sen of a sense of inferiority, especially with pornography, so accessible, so available, at the click of a button. At the click of a button, you can destroy your personality. That which was once innocent and outgoing and and social will become withdrawn and private and secretive and pathological. This, this has tremendous potential for damage. And one other thing uh, is this sexual sin is, has the capacity to engender deep bondage. I mean, you can get so addicted to certain sexual sins, and you, and and the mind can always bring rationale and logic to your behavior. Never trust your thinking on this area because you 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 can always explain why you're like this and why you're going to continue doing this. 
But the bondage, because sexual sin is deeper than the flesh, deeper than physical. It's chemical and emotional and even spiritual. It's not superficial. And so the bondage that that can come with sexual sin is deep and often long-lasting with irreversible consequences. You all remember Samson in the Old Testament? Strongest guy. And uh, he had a desire for prostitutes particularly prostitutes among the Philistines. And so he would go to prostitutes, tried to marry one of them, ended up with Delilah, a Philistine prostitute, and it says he loved her. It's the same word that's used for love throughout the Bible, to love your wife, to love God. He loved her. He really did. But she was simply a hireling by the Philistines to find out his secrets and his weaknesses and uh, she betrayed him to the Philistines. They took him and you know what they did to him? They gouged out his eyes. They blinded him and he was put with a grinder for the Philistines and made to grind out grain for the Philistines. He's not going to get his eyes back. Sexual sin can lead to long-lasting consequences. But I want to tell you, there is no area, because it has all this, this bondage and shame and depth and consequences to it, there is no area of our life that so illustrates and magnifies the power of Jesus Christ in His gospel. There's nothing quite like a person who's been in bondage to that sin and then that's been set free. I mean, this area of life has the potential to absolutely glorify Christ like few areas can. Is is the, in the area of our sexuality. Um, I love the hymn by Wesley. He breaks the power of cancel sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. I want you to know, Jesus Christ can enter this whole realm, this whole area, of sexual bondage and obsession and addiction and set us free in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if I didn't believe that, I I think I ought to get out of the ministry because that is the one area the world defends with all that it's got. But I want to tell you, you don't have to defend it. Let Jesus into it. He will not only forgive it, He will transform it. And He will heal you and bring joy that surpasses what you defined once as pleasure. So let's look at our text now. 
the the thing that I want to point out to you here, um, there's three or four things. I was interested in looking at this in verse 3, sexual immorality, all impurity, or covetousness. And my point there was covetousness has to do with a desire. It's coveting another man's wife. It's not coveting things. I think this whole area here from verse 3 through 6 is about sexual obsessions. Desiring that which you, which God will not give you and has proscribed or circumscribed. He has drawn a line and says no. And so he says, even our speech must not give way to the turmoil of our heart, but rather let there be thanksgiving in verse 4. I was interested to see how the, that Paul balanced all the foolish talk that often erupts. And he says, give thanks for things. Because one of the things that will help people is being thankful for what you have. If you're desiring that which God says no to, you're covetous for that girl or boy or husband or wife that belongs to someone else. And you're obsessive about it. It's all you think about. You're on fire for it. Paul says, look, there's an alternative. What is it? It's thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. And so what I would suggest that you do uh, in time of sexual temptation is just sit down and make a list of the areas that God has been good to you. Just say, God has given me this, God's given me this, God's given me this, and then just begin to thank God for all that He has given to you. And it's amazing how it will diminish the flame and the fire of sexual desire and give it over to a joy in God and praise and worship. That is his alternative, is thanksgiving instead of this constant topic that burns the brain up. He says, look, give thanks to God and especially if you are uh, married to someone and you're dissatisfied. And every husband or every wife knows what it means to go through a season in which this marriage is not working. I've been married 39 years. Every day has been absolutely blissful and perfect. I want to say, my dear wife is in the back. Bless her heart. What a joy. But most marriages go through seasons of deep disappointment. I was expecting Jesus, and I got the Antichrist. I was expecting Mother Teresa, and I got Madonna. <laughs> I was making that up as I was going along. <laughs> but one of the things that you can do when you go through those seasons of the soul is that you can sit down and start listing the good things about your mate and start thanking God for them. And if you do so, it won't be long till you get that little glint in your eye. Have you ever been apart for a while? You leave and you've kind of, you know, it's kind of dull, and you go away for a week or two, and then you come back. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's good. That's good. That's real good. 
All right. So thanksgiving, that just sort of jumped out for me there. Verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually impure or who is covetous. Now, I want you to notice what he does here is he gives three alarms. You may be sure of this. And the Apostle Paul comes in verse 5 and 6, and he lays out three. It's like um, some of you know I was in school last week down in Louisville. And my first class was at, at 8 a.m. Uh, early in the week. So I, so I wanted to make sure I was there with plenty of time, get my computer set up and, and impress the professor, you know. And, and I wanted to be cleaned up and have, my, have a prayer time and just be spiritually and physically ready to go. So I, I had two alarm clocks. One was one I took with me, and, uh, and I set it for 5.30. Then there was one that was in the room there that I was staying in. I set it for 5.30. So two alarm clocks. Went to sleep. Woke up. Suddenly looked around. It is light out at 5.30 here in Louisville. And I glanced at the clock, and it was 8.15. Ah! An F in my first class. I don't know what happened. Well, the first alarm clock, I set, but I didn't turn it to on. I didn't know what was wrong with the other ones, um, but that evening at 5.30, it went off. <laughs> so I thought, I set it for p.m. rather than a.m. <sighs> and so that's the way my school day started. And I took my little Batman lunchbox and trotted off to class. Anyway, um, but we need alarm clocks to get us going. Here's three alarms that the apostle lays out for us. These are to go off, <laughs> to warn, to awaken, to prod us. Here's the first one. Verse 5, you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, and then notice the parentheses, that is an idolater. Whoa. He says, if you are like that, if you are sexually impure, immoral, sexually addicted, and obsessive about someone else's husband or wife, he says, that is idolatry. Huh. I had a lady some years ago, and uh, she called. She was a member of one of our churches, uh, one of the Baptist churches in the area, and she wanted to talk to me because she hadn't been to church in a long time. And she came in for uh, counseling, I guess. I'm not sure what all she wanted, but we sat down. Across, she was across from me, and she began to tell me about her boyfriend. And she's about 40 years old. Uh, she'd been living with him for quite a while, not married. And uh, she said, well, I, he's, I'm afraid he's going to lose his home. He lived in a mobile home. And she said, I'm afraid he's going to lose his home. I said, well, where is he? She said, he's in jail. Oh, okay. Well, it happens. <laughs> and so I said, well, uh, why is he in jail? 
Well, she said, child molesting. But he didn't do it. I said, well, was he tried and found guilty? Uh, yeah, but he didn't do it. I said, how long is he going to be there? Several years. So she's waiting till he gets out of jail for child molestation to come home. And meanwhile, she is trying to save his home, keep the electricity on, and wait on her boyfriend who won't marry her. I said to her, you know, you have an idol. And that kind of startled her. She said, because she was thinking of an idol in my house, you know, that she'd fall down and worship. I said, she said, I don't, I don't know what you mean. You can have, I said, he is your idol. He's the one you're worshiping. You look to him for all your joy in life. You're serving him. You're putting yourself at risk for him. You're waiting on him in faith. You believe him no matter what he says. This is your God. You're worshiping him and following him, giving your life to him. This is an idol. And I gave her uh, Ezekiel 14. Uh, pull up that Ezekiel 14, 1 to 4. Look at this passage. Ezekiel's a prophet in the Old Testament. Some of the elders of Israel come to him and they sit down in front of him. And he says in verse 2, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put these wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. So should I let them inquire of me at all? See, uh, Ezekiel had these people who come to him to ask him questions and get guidance and wisdom and direction, and God says, I'm not going to give them any wisdom because they have an idol. All they're going to do is take whatever I give them, whatever wisdom I give them, and they're going to take it and then go serve their false god. So I'm not going to help them. Uh, and I gave her that verse, and I said, You're, you have an idol in your heart, and you need to repent of your idol. And there are people who do that. They make their boyfriend, their girlfriend, their husband, their wife, even a child or children, that's their idol. That's what they look to for joy and happiness. That's what they live for. That's what they put faith in. That's what they live through. Everything revolves around that. That's what all the money is spent on. That's their God. Uh, give me uh, back up there to Romans 1, 21 to 25. Look at this passage. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. Notice again there the giving thanks. But they became futile in their thinking. Their, heart, their foolish heart was darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. You can worship people. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts and the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature 
rather than the Creator. You can have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, but they are not God, and you need to stop talking about them like they're God, and you need to stop referring to them like they're God. You need to stop like being breathless about them as if they're God. They're just people. And they're sinners in need of a Savior. And your husbands are not your gods. They have feet of clay. They've got good parts and they've got bad parts and God bless you and may I give you grace and strength to live with them. <laughs> A study that I did years ago was that if you take two people who are in the absolute throes of romantic love. They did a study of several, I don't know, uh, I, I forget how many, but I, I, I've read this in a couple of books since then, that the average period of time in which that romantic fervor lasts is 24 months. And usually, it is at its peak in the absence of the lover. In other words, it's not when they're together. It's before they get married. It's before they get together. It's before he leaves his wife for you. It's before he, she leaves her husband for you. That, that period of time is 24 months. Within 24 months, almost everybody gets down to business. Got to live life. Got to pay the bills. Were we going to get gas for the car and money for the mortgage? I'm sick with the flu. I'm puking my guts out. Ugh. Now we're in, in love. Ugh. <laughs> How about closing the bathroom door? But, folks, this is idolatry. This is idolatry. There is only one awesome, glorious, deeply soul-satisfying fountain, and that is the Lord our God as revealed in Jesus Christ. And Him alone we worship. We make covenants with our husbands and wives. We worship the Lord our God. When your husband tells you to do things that are against the God of heaven, you say, look, you're my husband, but you're not Jehovah God. I follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I am a Christian. And I am in covenant with you, but I am saved by the God of heaven. When it comes time for me to die, there is nothing you can do to help me. Then the shepherd of the sheep is the one who's going to have to ferry me across death's Jordan. Jesus is going to be the one you need in life and the one you will require in death. Husband or wife or children or none other person can help you when it comes that time to die. So this is like an alarm goes off. when If you are sexually obsessed or tempted towards someone who you need to realize that that 
borders in some cases on idolatry and actually crosses over the line. That's an alarm. A person can become an idol. That's what Paul puts out in front of us. But then he goes on in verse 5, that last statement of verse 5, and he says something else. Those who are covetous or obsessed with someone that they can't have, they're idolaters, number one. And then number two, you need to realize that you will lose your inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. That person who is sexually obsessed and an idolater, they have no part in the future of God and His people. Now, I am not talking here about the Christian who's struggling. I don't think the apostle is addressing that. I don't think we're talking about the teenager who's fighting his hormonal transitions and adolescent struggles and growing up, or uh, the, the person who is a Christian but he has fallen, maybe he has homosexual tendencies and he's fallen, and but he gets up and he's trying and he's seeking God and he's... He is, but he does. He's not the person going around saying, uh, "God made me this way, and I'm not going to fight." Let me and let me tell you something. If you have homosexual tendencies, look, most guys I know have problems in their sexuality. Most of us fight temptations to do things that are outside the marriage covenant. You go to the grocery store in the middle of the summer, and there'll be at least two or three. Uh, nice-looking young ladies who didn't, evidently, they weren't taught how to dress well. I mean, I'm not like, my, sometimes, okay, sometimes my first thought is not, I should witness to this person. <laughs> that, sometimes that's not my first thought. My first thought is to throw my coat over them so that, anyway. But for all of us who struggle, he says, I want you to know, for those who just embrace their sinfulness and there is no fight in them, there is no life in them, they just embrace it. He said, you need to know, this is an alarm. There is no inheritance for you in the kingdom of God and of Christ. What, what an awful word is that. And it is straight from an apostle sent by the living Jesus Christ. This is an area that we must, through the power and grace of Jesus Christ, conquer. Because Bondage to sexual sin is incompatible with the risen Christ who is in us. He hates all kinds of bondage. And he calls us to his freedom that he will give us. In fact, Galatians, 4, uh, Galatians 5 says, It was for freedom that he died to set you free. One of his very objectives was freedom. So alarm number one, it is idolatry. Alarm number two is that there is no future for those 
who embrace their bondage. Christians sometimes act like they want forgiveness but not deliverance. And that the Lord Jesus does not separate from. Forgiveness and deliverance. Matthew one twenty one. they shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It does not say, for he will forgive his people in their sins, but he will save his people from their sins. Nothing so glorified. Jesus Christ, as to be able to take someone who's been sexually addicted, sexually obsessed, sexually in bondage for many years and to suddenly enter their life and set them free so that they are taken out of the miry clay and put their feet on a solid rock. They have a new song in their mouth. Many will hear it and fear and trust in the Lord. Forgiveness and deliverance. Third alarm is in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Here's the third alarm. The wrath of God will come on them. Judgments of God, the chastisements of God, The anger of God will break out ultimately against that sin. In your life, in a church's life, in a nation's life, it will break out against that sin. Don't be deceived by the people who tell you there is no such thing as God's judgments. That's what he says here. Let no one deceive you with empty words. That's words that mean nothing. The truth is, God does bring judgments. It's an alarm that He sounds for us. In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, it says they caught this woman right in the very act of adultery. And they drug her in front of Jesus. And in front of Jesus, he began to write on the ground, um, which there's a verse in Jeremiah, I meant to look it up, but there's a verse in Jeremiah where God says, I will write the sins of Israel in the dust of the earth. Jesus here is writing the sins as the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is writing the sins of these men who surround this woman, just like God said he would do. I will write their sins in the dust of the earth. And one by one, it says, they began to leave because, oh, there's my name, I'm out of here. And he looks up and they're all gone. And Jesus said to the woman who was caught in adultery, he said, woman, where's your accusers? See, the world quotes that and says, let him that's without sin cast the first stone. And that's in there. But the whole text says this. Where's your accusers? They're all gone. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Hallelujah. 
Now go and sin no more. Hallelujah. Amen. That's two parts to the gospel. Forgiveness and deliverance. I don't condemn you, but don't stay in the sin. Or how about the father receiving the prodigal home in Luke 15? Remember that story? The prodigal son gets his inheritance, goes and wastes it, and the father longs for his son to return. And he sees him coming and he runs to him and embraces him and it says he kisses him. Now that's what I'd call reconciliation and forgiveness. But then what does the father do? We're going to have, <clears throat> we're going to have this big supper. <clears throat> Bring forth the best robe. Get him some shoes on his feet. <clears throat> In other words, clean him up. Make him presentable. Because of the life that you are now entering into, you need appropriate cleansing. That's why 1 John 1.9 says that if any of us sin, if we sin, then we confess our sins. And God is faithful and just to forgive us. Amen? And what? Cleanse. Forgive and cleanse. But who wants to be forgiven and not be clean? Oh, what a gospel that would be. I want to be forgiven and I want to be free and I want to be clean and I want to please God who has received me and forgiven me. That's the full gospel. The whole gospel. In Jeremiah chapter 2, I was just looking at this verse this morning. Jeremiah is quoting the words of God to the people of Israel. And, and God says in Jeremiah 2, he says, Be shocked, O universe. Be appalled, O heavens. Well, what is it that every, the entire universe should be shocked at, that all the galaxies should suddenly come to a standstill and look at this thing? What is it? My people have committed two evils. One is they forsook me, the fountain of satisfying, clean water for their soul. That is pretty amazing that somebody would leave a beautiful running fountain. And he says, secondly, they turned to broken cisterns that hold no water. What? Let the galaxies cease their spirals. Let the universe come to us ceasing. Let the sun stop its shining. For God's people have turned from the fountain, the divine, all-soul-satisfying, freeing fountain, and hewn out these cisterns, these broken, dirty cisterns. They don't even hold water. What a trade is that? I used to, when I was growing up on the farm, we had a cistern. 
oh, those things were so frustrating. And we, we didn't have any in, indoor plumbing. So we had water. We had to go outside to the corner of the house. And there was this pump. And it was made out of iron. And you pumped. And it would squeak because it would rust. And, and you just pump and you pump and you pump. And so sometimes somebody would come with you so you, they could pump a while. Wouldn't hold water. And then you, they'd, we would do what we called uh, prime the pump. Anybody, anybody ever prime the pump? <laughs> we used to prime the pump. And that means you pour water down it. You have to come with your own water <laughs> in order to get it to give you water. So you prime the pump, and finally it would spit out some water for you. I mean, we, that's why we took baths once a month. <laughs> but since I've got indoor plumbing, I do it twice a month. No, but, but that, I remember that was the most frustrating thing. God says, why would you leave this beautiful Niagara Falls of beauty and glory and majesty and turn to this exhausting, frustrating, depleting, and unsatisfying? That's what sex outside of marriage is. God's made ample provision for our happiness. You think God is happy? He doesn't want us to be happy? No, He doesn't want us to be sad. So He leads us in those things. He tells us, stay away from that. That will destroy your life. He loves us. All right, the band's going to come and sing a final song for us and lead us, but, but let's worship Him. He is our all-satisfying fountain. He will be to us what we need so that we do not have to turn in a shocking way to that which does not satisfy.